Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen, and please be seated. Hey, my name's Jim. I'm the lead pastor here at Journey Church. Welcome. He is risen. Yeah. So I have a question and a little bit of a conundrum. It was uh, two millennia ago on a Friday afternoon in, in Israel where Jesus of Nazareth hung on a cross and at about three o'clock uh, Israel time, he cried out, it is finished. Meaning paid in full. In whatever it was that Jesus came to do, at that moment, it was complete. So why is resurrection morning so important? So, so here's, the, here's the conundrum. If the resurrection could add nothing to the redemption, to the atonement, to the sacrifice, why is the resurrection such a big deal? And here is the answer. Because the resurrection was God's seal of approval, God's guarantee, and the evidence that whatever it was that was accomplished by the life and death of Jesus was legitimate, accepted as payment, and complete. It was the seal of approval. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, the whole idea here is this, the resurrection and the fact that the body is not there, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. I want to tell you this, I'm 52 years old. I am more convinced than ever. I am more intellectually and emotionally satisfied with the evidence for the resurrection than I have ever been. And to just say, 1 Corinthians 15 is my anchor text. In fact, the entire Bible looks to 1 Corinthians 15 for the evidence. Uh, the one who wrote that, an enemy of Christ in Christianity, now one of the greatest missionaries and church planners, his name was the Apostle Paul. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he said that over 500 people saw him alive after his murder. And I just say, wow, at this point, I'm a very intellectually satisfied and emotionally satisfied follower of Jesus. The tomb is empty. God has accepted what he offered as payment in full. It is our cornerstone, our evidence. And watch this, that the atonement is legitimate that it is complete. And we have an opportunity now to draw near to God, whereas before we did not have that. Uh, we are at the end of uh, a six-week sermon series on the atonement. And over the last several weeks as the Journey Church, we looked at Old Testament passages foreshadowing, uh, predicting, explaining, nuancing, prophesying, the one-day atonement of the Christ on behalf of all peoples. 
the word atonement, it shows up about 400 years ago in the English language. It's a compound word that literally means at-one-ment. And the idea behind the at-one-ment is that uh, an offense has occurred and uh, there are now warring parties. And the at-one-ment, the atonement, is that which brings together these two offended parties. And in the scriptures, what we have is, is God and mankind that have been separated by sin. God provides the at-one-ment. Furthermore, when we find that we've been atoned for, it also solves the problem between mankind and mankind. God has paid the price to bring us back together once more. A definition that we've been using that blends the Hebrew word for atonement, the Greek word for atonement, and the English word of atonement. Real simple, it means to cover over, that's Hebrew, to make an exchange, that's Greek, and then to make payment for wrongs done in order to restore a relationship. That's the English translation. And we've been looking at these profound uh, pictures of what God would one day do. Let me just review them for you. We looked at the clothing for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And that Jesus is our shame covering. We looked at a ram caught by the horns that was the substitute for Isaac. Instead of Isaac being put to death, the ram was put to death in his place, Genesis 22. The Passover lambs of Exodus 13, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. The drowning of the Egyptian army in exchange for the lives and deliverance of the Jews through the, the, the heart of the Red Sea. And then last week, Pastor Tyler, such an excellent job on the, the Day of Atonement. In particular, particularly two goats that were to be offered. One for a burnt offering, one for a scapegoat sent out of the camp into the desert to the demons. And Jesus is the completion, the fulfillment of all these pictures and types. Well, this morning, we have one last picture of the atonement. And it's a doozy. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, it's, it's Leviticus chapter, actually Numbers chapter 21. So you can turn there. It's the fourth book in your, uh, your collection of, of scriptures. Um, toward the beginning of your Bible, Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. And this is what it says. From Mount Hor... They set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. It says here, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and 
live. Now let's do a little context to understand where this, this historical account is, is set. This is actually now 38 years into the desert wanderings. In Numbers chapter 20, three major things happen. Miriam, the sister of Moses, dies. Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest, dies. And Moses is so angry with the people he's called to lead. God tells him to speak to a rock and water will miraculously come out of it. And instead, Moses, when he's winding up, gets angry and strikes the rock two times. And God says, you're disqualified. You will never enter the promised land. Three godly people, three leaders in Israel. Two are dead and one is disqualified. You say, what in the world is going on here? And what is going on is God is keeping his promise. Actually, in, in Numbers chapter 14, it says that God says to the Jews, and we not only hear the what, but the why. He says, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, you watched me do miracles. You saw it with your own eyes. You experienced it with your lives. And yet have put me to the test these 10 times. So by Numbers 14, 10 times they doubted, complained, and grumbled against God. And it says, they have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. So doubting God resulted in complaining, grumbling, and speaking out against God. And what we have going on here is God saying, hey, everyone who is 20 years and over, I'm not going to let you see the promised land. Everyone 20 and under. And now in Numbers 21, the parents are dying off and the children are growing up. It's time to prepare to enter the promised land. It'll come in the next year or year and a half. Now, Numbers 21 opens with a, a wonderful first victory against the Canaanites. It's not time to invade the Canaanites. Uh, they are not invaders. They actually get attacked. And they are untrained in war. And yet, God is blessing them so that these untrained Jews fight back for their lives and it's an overwhelming and devastating victory. It looks as if it's a, it's a new day indeed. That's how Numbers 21 actually begins. But you notice what we just read. The very same sin that caused their parents to lose out on the opportunity to see the glory of God in the new land, the promised land. The very same sin shows up in their lives. Here's what we discover. If we were to go back to chapter 20, there's one more thing in chapter 20, and that is this. An evil king of Edom, insecure, feeling threatened, refuses passage through his land. So after this short but overwhelming victory in war, God leads them around the land of Edom, and it's a hard, hard march. It's difficult. And in the midst of that 
hard and exhausting struggle. They become discouraged and this old sin of the parents comes back. Pouting, complaining, blaming, speaking against God and against his leader, Moses. And yet it was God who all along is guiding them, providing for them, protecting them, doing good to them and for them. He is blessing them. And yet here they are, one hard season, and they go back to the sins of the fathers and mothers. They complain. It says here in verse 4, the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness where there is no food or water? Was that even true? It's not true. They were being given the bread of angels. For 38 years, they were eating supernatural, miraculous food that every morning would be on the ground for them called manna. And they're actually lying when they say there's no food. Why? Because complaining and grumbling is blind to the blessings of God around them. And he, they actually talk about the manna and they say, we loathe this worthless food. We hate it. Can you imagine the bread of heaven? The food of angels. Supernatural manna. And it's just not good enough for them. And so they complain. And there's a lesson here. You know what it is? It's, yeah, life is hard. It is hard. Um, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to mourn the difficulty. It's even okay to say, wow, this is hard. But complaining evidences sinful and unbelieving hearts. See, the reality is that ever since sin entered the world, one commandment in the garden, don't eat of that tree. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we read in the New Testament that all creation is groaning, that it is uh, in, in like birth pangs, that um, it is under a curse, and life is hard for everyone. But when we turn to complaining, grumbling, it evidences a sinful and unbelieving heart. See, the life in the wilderness was already tough because of a creation that was in chaos. Yet God was and is generous, good, and kind. God was with them the entire time. He was showing up in so many ways. The manna itself, every day, six out of seven days out of the week. On Saturday, no manna, but you were supposed to gather up twice as much on Friday. But it was enough. Uh, we find out supernatural, miraculous Water. Water from a rock? Did you know that their sandals did not wear out for 40 years? You go, how awesome is that? You go, wait, I'm a shoe guy. I want new shoes. Hey, sorry, there's no Amazon. No Zappos. You need your sandals to stay good for 38 years. Guess what? They stayed good. They did not wear out. God was there as a fire by night to give them light and to give them warmth. In the daytime, the pillar of fire was a pillar of cloud to block out the sun, to give them shade and cool. And we also discover he was giving them victory in battle. But God's goodness was not good enough 
for complainers. To grumble, complain, speak against the Lord, just like their parents, and watch this, just like the one who I will call the original malcontent. I'll introduce you to him in a moment. But just so you know, that there's really not a case for some kind of grumbling or complaining that's okay. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Reverse that. Meaning, if you grumble and complain, you're not blameless and innocent. Complaining evidences sinful and unbelieving hearts. Any complainers in here? Me too. Yeah, not there yet. Well, by the time we get to Numbers 21, we don't have just 10 times. We have 14 times. And every time, every time, and God's good, God's blessing them, but every time that they doubt him, they don't believe. They despise him. They disobey him. When he's actually doing them good, they think he's doing them harm. Every time, it really upsets God. He's really frustrated. And so it says here in verse 6 that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And here's the takeaway. So as in the first first. Uh, lesson, complaining evidence is sinful and unbelieving hearts. Here, what we discover is life is hard enough as it is, but sin makes it even harder. Why? Because sin brings a curse. Sin, sin brings judgment and condemnation. You want to know something? That, that there's evidence that up to this point, there's been serpents around them all the time. Yet up to this point, God is shutting the mouths of the serpents. Nobody's getting bit in the desert. But in this instance, God merely removes his hand of restraint and gives them what they deserve. Where I get this is in the next book. A year later, Moses is preaching his final sermon, preparing the people to cross over into Canaan and to take the land. In, in Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law of God, reminding it's the final sermon of Moses, the whole thing. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, Don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, watch this, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Don't forget, God restrained the danger and protected you. So you go, well, what's going on here? They're complaining. God is being gracious, and yet they are complaining. Yes, life's hard. But you don't complain against the one who is protecting you. This is the nature of the Almighty for the religious and irreligious alike. He is a restrainer, and he is doing people good, and his individual people even better. So it's as if God's saying, you say I'm not good? You say I'm not protecting and providing? Watch this. This is me stepping out of the way. And the serpents begin to attack. 
See, this questioning, doubting, castigating the character God was at the very heart of original sin, I believe. And I seem to recall that there was a snake involved. Do you remember? Genesis 3. And now in, in the wilderness wandering in Numbers 21, instead of treading upon the heads of snakes and scorpions, God simply removed his hand of restraint and let them out as people. Matthew Henry, Puritan pastor, said this, justly are those made to feel God's judgments that are not thankful for his mercies. And the idea there is life's hard as it is. Sin makes it harder. It brings a curse and judgment. This is what we read in Genesis 2.17, the warning, don't eat of the tree. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And now all creation is groaning. There's other kinds of cursing that comes new measures and layers and kinds when we doubt God, take matters into our own hands, other things, other very bad things happen. Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16, same exact verse. Solomon put it in there twice. He says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein leads to death. And what that says is like, we're not smarter than God. We, we can't just make up morality. We can't just decide what, what's right and wrong. It, it'll, the wrong thing will seem right to us. And we will not only walk down that path, but others, others will follow along. And the end therein is a very, very bad, bad outcome. The Apostle Paul would say this to the church in Galatia. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. That's what, what happens after your body's dead and it starts to decay. It's not a good path. And the Apostle Paul would say in his letter to the Romans that the wages of sin is death. Okay, life's hard enough as it is. Sin makes it harder. Why? Because sin brings a curse. Well, there's good news in this story. And the good news is this, the curse of sin is death, but repentance changes everything. God got their attention. And it says in verse 7 that the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. What's going on here? The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 78 recounts the entire wilderness wanderings, and it was actually to be sung in the synagogue, the tabernacle, or the temple. Psalm 78, and in Psalm 78, Asaph explains what God was doing and why he allowed the serpents to bite them. And he says, when he killed them, now hold on, you go, whoa, what kind of God is that? Uh, the real God, the one who makes life and death. He's allowed to create it, he's allowed to take it. We are not. Um, he is not like us. He is the giver of life, and he is the one who takes it. So when he killed them, he did something. They sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. What's going on here? God loved them. And they were doubting and questioning and castigating him and his character when he loved them. And so he removed his hand of, of restraint and let them have what they deserved. And when that happened... They came to their senses and begged God. They sought God, and God healed them. 
verse 8 through 9, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. Everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made the serpent, put it on a pole. If the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the serpent and live. Now this is fascinating. Make an image of the vile, detestable, unkosher creature that is killing you and look at it. That ought to do it, right? Well, it did because God said it would and he keeps his promise, but it really is a conundrum. Why the bronze serpent? And yet look at the outcome. Uh, Even those who didn't understand, those with poor eyesight, those that saw it from miles away, understand there's at least three to eight million Jews. Hey, there's only a million in in Pima County. This is a big city. And, and, And they're looking from a distance. I think it's fuzzy. I'm healed. Even those that doubted and thought it was silly, but if they would do it, they would be completely and totally healed. The end. That's the end of the story. The the bronze serpent shows up one time a few hundred years later in 2 Kings 18. It had become an idol. They even named it Nahushtan. And they burned incense to it and and prayed to it. And And a godly king of Judah named Hezekiah said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Pretty sure that's a false god. Break it into pieces. And they destroyed Nehushtan. Gone. Another thousand years goes by. It's an artifact buried in history until one nighttime meeting Jesus has with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. A man who had been taught from childhood that he was of the good people's tribe. And that as a rule-keeping Jew, he was preferred by Yahweh over even the other Jews. Convinced in his mind that keeping the rules of God would make him good. Jesus does a mic drop in the middle of their conversation that you heard Pastor Tyler read the text. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Serpent in the wilderness? Jesus? Atonement? Here's the deal. I, I, I understand the other illustrations. I understand the other examples. I understand the other foreshadowings. I mean, think of them. Uh, the animal killed for its skin to make covering for Adam and Eve. Yes, Jesus, you can be my shame covering. Uh, throw one in that we didn't study, but the firstborn from the flock as an acceptable offering for Abel. Yes, you can be my acceptable offering, Lord Jesus. Yes. A ram caught by the horns for Isaac. Yes, a year-old lamb for Passover for the life of the firstborn sons. Yes, a goat for a burnt offering on the Day of Atonement. Yes, a scapegoat to take my sins outside the camp for the Day of Atonement. Yes, and you look at the example, an animal, a firstborn, a ram, a lamb, a goat. Yes, but a snake? Oh, no. Which one of these things is not like the other? Which one of these does not belong? You ever remember that little song? 
Do you see it? Whoa! A vile, revolting, disgusting, venomous, destroying serpent. No! What's going on here? And here's what I would argue. In looking at this illustration, we discover the story beneath the story. There's a deeper story. There is the true story. There is the real story. The real story of history and what is going beyond, going on right under our noses. And it's a story. It's an, a story about a great dragon and a great dragon slayer. You see, there is an enemy of God. He is the serpent and the dragon. In the Hebrew, he is the Nakash and the Tanin. As the Nakash, he is the deceiver. And as the Tanin, he is the destroyer. He is the arrogant, conceited malcontent who thought he could rule the universe better than Yahweh God. Isaiah 14 records his words. I will ascend to, the, to, to heaven. Above the scars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I'm better than God. I can do it better than him. Isn't that the heart of all grumbling? He is the deceiving serpent who lured Eve to mistrust and complain against Yahweh God. In Genesis 3, we read, he says, did God actually say? So he begins to question God. He goes on to say, the, the, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now he's not just questioning God, he is contradicting God. He goes on to say, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Not only is he questioning God, contradicting God, now he is castigating the very character and heart of God Almighty. Because of this, God cursed him, cast him out, and condemned him as the malcontent. Genesis 3.14, the curse on the serpent says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Eat dirt. We read in Isaiah 14, the other part of the story and how God responds to his, I will ascend speech. God says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And then in Genesis 3.15, we are told that there's going to be the story behind the story. That the entire story and history of the universe is going to be one of war between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here's the promise and the prophecy. He shall bruise your head and you shall strike his heel. The one who wanted to be like the most high would be the most low. He would slither and eat dirt. His seed would attack the woman's seed but would be destroyed. His head would be one day crushed by the seed of the woman. And we see in the scriptures that the seed of the woman shows up again and again and again throughout the pages of scripture. A few examples, Seth. Okay, because Cain is represented as the seed of the serpent who murders his brother. Abel was the seed of the woman, but he's put to death. Adam and Eve have a new son named Seth. He is the seed of the woman. 
Noah, the seed of the woman, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and yes, Jesus are all the seed of the woman. Believing Israel is the seed of the woman. And the true New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. But as I mentioned, Cain, the dragon, the serpent dragon would have his seed as well. As I mentioned, Cain is seen as a devouring monster, murdering his own brother. Pharaoh, actually all the pharaohs of Egypt are known as the serpent kings of Egypt. The symbols that they use, the gods that they pray to, the one who was in power when Moses was born was depicted as a devouring dragon. Can I tell you, dragons hate children. Dragons hate babies, unborn and newly born. Dragons devour. And Pharaoh, when the Jews become too powerful, he says, start throwing the babies into the Nile. Sisera, in the book of Judges, he's the commander of Canaan's armies, runs into a tent and hides, says, put me, put me under the rug and, and hide me. And a girl named Jael gives him warm goat's milk and he falls to sleep and then she, she takes a tent peg and drives it through and crushes his head. She is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of the serpent. The Philistine god, Dagon, he's depicted as a sea serpent. And there's an example in, in 1 Samuel where where uh, the, the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant where, that has the mercy seat and, and manna and the Ten Commandments inside of it. They steal it. They think it's a good luck charm. They put it in the temple of Dagon, big statue of their false god Dagon. And in the morning, they come in and Dagon has fallen on his face with his head crushed. Dagon is depicted as the seed of the serpent. Goliath is depicted as the seed, of, the seed of the serpent. He invades the land of Israel wearing scaly armor. He taunts and mocks Almighty God and the people of God. David, the seed of the woman, takes him down by smashing him in the head with a stone and takes his head off his body like you do with a poisonous serpent when you kill it. Herod the Great in the New Testament, the, the, the leader of Palestine when Jesus was born. He's depicted as a great dragon who murders babies in an attempt to stop Messiah from growing up. And what we discover is that there is a sinister, dark, supernatural power behind this leader. John, in his book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, describes the scene of what is going on. The, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Why? Because the serpent wants to stop the ultimate seed of the woman, knowing the prophecy against him. And he's attempted to put the people, the seed of God to death again and again and again and again. We discover in the Gospels, and this is mind-blowing, both John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth called the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of serpents. And Jesus went on to say, you snakes. And in John chapter 8, he says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. 
See, the Pharisees and Sadducees, self-righteous, rule-keeping people that thought that they were better than everyone else, God's preferred people, because they were so awesome. And Jesus says, oh man, is that not the deception of Lucifer himself? I will ascend. I am better than even Yahweh. And so, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees are depicted as the seed of the serpent, a poisonous, hypocritical, and murderous brood of vipers. Well, the the serpent, because of this war, has been cast out of heaven. He's been mortally wounded. He will be completely destroyed one day. We read in Revelation 12, verse 9, And the great red dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. He's been cast out. He has been wounded in the head, but he is in a rage because he knows his time is short. But here is the promise of God. Isaiah 27, 1, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. People, this is the story behind the story. This is the true story. This is the real story, whether you believe it or not. This is the story of the ages. But I'm coming back to this question. Jesus lifted up like a serpent? I mean, we just talked about that's the the, the sworn enemy of God, the deceiver and the destroyer. Jesus lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness? What is going on here? And the answer is found in Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. That we might in him become the righteousness of God. So this is part of the answer that he would take on the image and likeness of his sworn enemy in becoming sin itself. Vile, detestable, repugnant, repulsive, wicked, and I might add cursed. We see that the serpent making his final attempt to thwart the prophecy of God, seeing him impaled on a cross, slithering away, believing that he had gotten the upper hand and that the fate had been reversed, but only to find out on resurrection morning he had only bruised his heel. And realizing for the first time, I'm a dead man. That while Jesus was lifted up on the cross like a serpent in the likeness of vile, sinful rebellion, the head of the serpent was being crushed. Jesus not only became sin, but the scriptures tell us he also became the curse of sin. This is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's the resurrection about? God's seal of approval that the atonement is good to go. You can rest in it. In the invitation to, to embrace the atonement, 
for yourself is this. It's our bottom line. If you're taking notes, you want to scribble this down. Jesus became sin and its curse. Both things so that those who look to and believe in him would live forever. You don't have to have great eyesight. You can look to him from a distance. You can even say, gee, this is interesting. I don't understand it. And yet the scripture says, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because Jesus became sin and it's curse for us. That those who look to and believe would live forever. Why is the resurrection such a big deal? It was the final blow to the serpent. He had failed. His head had been crushed. But let me also just say this. For it to become personal for you, you must receive it personally. Jesus said this in John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, you hear the language of the serpent lifted up and looking to it, Although everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, you aren't a believer. You aren't a Christian. You aren't born again because you were born into a Christianized nation. It's not a default thing like, well, I guess I'm not a Muslim, so I guess I'm this. It's not something uh, that, that is a part of your family culture that makes you one as well. God has no grandchildren. Every single person born again in spiritual new birth is a first-generation child of God. And it must be owned and it must be personal. So the invitation here on this Resurrection Sunday, in the year of our Lord, 2022, so long after the serpent's head has been crushed, is... Have you called upon him? Have you looked to him? Have you believed upon him for your own atonement? Because he's the only sacrifice left. And he's the once for all and final sacrifice for sin. But you've got to look to him. Why not right now? Why not simple childlike faith that says, I'm, I'm dying from, from sin and curse and venom. I'm a dead man. Look to Jesus today. Call upon Jesus today and live. Those of us who say, yeah, that's my life. Man, I know I'm, I'm forgiven. I know I'm atoned for. You know that life is hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's easy to turn back and grumble and question and doubt and castigate the character and nature of God. To take matter into our own hand. Uh, to, to do what we think is right in our own eyes only to discover it leads to death. And we have a word for us as well. In Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through 11, he uses this to admonish us to live for Jesus. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Listen, anything that we put in place of God, anything we want or love more than God, that's going to be trouble. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, one of the idols of our culture. And the conclusions, when you say, God is not fair, I'm going to do it my way, and we indulge in these kinds of behaviors. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble 
as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Journey Church, friends, neighbors, relatives, special guests, look to Jesus, believe on Jesus, and live. But let's also live for Jesus. He is the great dragon slayer. The head of the serpent's been crushed. Do not follow the paths of the serpent. But let us follow the paths of the Savior. Amen? He is risen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life for us. Boy, that must have been horrible to become sin and the curse. Thank you for your great love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.